You are now listening to the Claim It Podcast with me, your host, Trisha Huffman, also known as your joyologist. On this podcast, I love having conversations with people who inspire and intrigue me going through the journey of their life. I do this with the hopes that by you getting into other people's life stories, you see that it's not always or often a straight upward line, that people that accomplish awesome things have gone through some twists, some turns, some doubts, some fears, some career changes, all the things. And I hope that it allows you to give more compassion to yourself and also see that, hey, There are still so many possibilities available to you that you can make a different choice, a change at any moment. On today's episode, I have Nancy Levin, best-selling author, a master life coach. She's the host of Your Permission Prescription podcast, which I got to be a guest on back in May. And wow, I really loved hearing her journey. And I think you will too. So take a listen if you haven't already, if you can hit the follow, which is the new version of subscribe button, and also leave the podcast a review. If you do, you can send a screenshot of your review to podcast at (laughs) yourjoyologist.com, and I will send you a gift from my product line as a thank you. That's when you leave a review, screenshot it, email it to me at podcast at yourjoyologist.com. All right, here we go. Hi, Nancy. Hi, Trisha. It's always fun when I get to talk to someone that's then like I've been on your podcast and now like the roles are reversed. I know. And like <laughs> I've been following you for so long, Aww. even before I had you on my podcast and your book came out. So I feel so excited to have our connection. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, I was like, I, I felt a little, I was like, oh, like that all that you heard was a real like emotional, like, <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> um, so I love starting with, you can start earlier than this, like how you grew up childhood, but I especially love talking about the high school years because I feel like it's just an interesting time. And then there can be so much pressure on us and we're trying to figure out who we are and like what we're going to do with the rest of our lives. And now looking back, it's ridiculous. <laughs> Right. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, the high school years. Well, I went to an all girls high school. Me too. And I was very much a loner, and I still am. And high school was really a time where I began creating a container for myself because my parents were very, my parents are very liberal. They were very, uh, you know, it was very, very free. Not where did you grow up? They were not strict with me. I grew up in Buffalo, New York. Okay. So I, the only way that I felt safe was by creating something for me to be inside of. So I'm the one who put pressure on myself. Interesting. Yes. Like so many kids are like, oh, I don't want these rules. Like give me freedom sort right. of thing. And you sounds like you had the freedom or like, I, yeah, let me it be was, in a little bubble. Please. Yeah. It was like almost <laughs> as too, like it was too much. I, I needed something to contain me. And 
you know, one of the stories I love to tell is that uh, when I was in high school and my sister, who's four years younger, my mom had said to us, you know, stay home. Let's go to lunch. Let's go to a movie. And my sister, of course, went to the movie with my mom and out to lunch. And I went to school and I graduated high school with perfect attendance. And wow. Yeah. <laughs> Which, you know, is funny looking, looking back on that and all the things that I sort of made that mean at the time. But you know, I did nothing to prepare my parents for the rebel my sister would be. So, you know, she was she was off and running out of the gate doing things that I to this day have never done. So like so she your parents had this like free <laughs> parenting approach and their oldest, it's like, well, it's great. Yeah, because she just she doesn't push any like we don't have to worry right. about this freedom right. or even think about it. It's working out perfectly because right. look at how like, well, Nancy does. Right. And then your sister was like, oh, that sounds, me and my sister are four years apart. I'm the younger one. Ah. I didn't really have, they didn't, I mean, I didn't have the freedom parents, but yes, like much different kids. And I was like the younger kid of like, like I made it a point of like, well, why would I listen to your rules? Like that doesn't even make sense. Like I get good grades. I work. I, you know, I play soccer. So who cares if I follow your rules? Like right. That I fought back at 15 and was like, so I'm not going to listen because I'm I'm doing great. Okay, parents? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> like they're just like forced to be like, okay, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And you know, I remember when I was 16, I found out my parents had smoked pot and I didn't talk to them for three days. I was a really square. I didn't. So interesting. I was really square. I really didn't do any of the things that teenagers are sort of supposed to do. And I also feel it's important to mention, uh, you know, because you, you know, I was not always the oldest child. Mm. So I had a brother who died. I was two and he was six. And this was and is a very significant part of, of me, of my story, of who I have become, you know, based on, on that experience of losing, losing my brother at that time. And what ensued in terms of the relationship with my parents. Mm, yeah. Because, yeah, so you were two, which two. I'm so, I'm. So yeah. sorry that yes, thank you. That happened too. And yeah, so yeah, like that's such a young age that it feels like, well, how could that have really impacted you or how could you remember it? But it it's just like the dynamic. I mean, of course, you'd remember that. It's just that's such an interesting thing. Cause like, yeah, like I mean, I have kids that are now five and seven, and it's hard to even remember the two-year-old state already. <laughs> but like, yeah, like they are like little sponges and they do know a lot. So yeah, like what, and I'm guessing obviously that loss must have crushed your parents losing a child. So that too was that just feeling that sort of before and after. Right. So my brother was born what they then called mentally retarded. He was really severely incapacitated. And so, but it was back in the early 1960s when they didn't have all the tests and things that they do now. So 
my parents didn't know anything was wrong with him until he didn't do the things that infants are supposed to do. He didn't roll over or lift his head or sit up, like do things. So then he was, you know, diagnosed, you know, several months later. So my mother and I have had adult conversations in which she actually said to me, I didn't want to attach to you when you were born because I was waiting to see what was wrong with you. Oh my gosh. Right. Just, I'm about to, yeah, cry. And like, I, it's like that makes sense. And it's like, what, like that can sound awful, but it's like, yeah, like that trauma that going through. So, you know, I first, you know, I, I mean, all of this obviously is what I've learned about myself through therapy. And a long, long time later. Yeah. You didn't move through life as a childhood. Well, yes, I have. My parents expressed love through this this way right. because they were. <laughs> but I know now, you know, and my parents did. My parents have told me that when my brother died, there was, that there was a noticeable shift in me, even at two. Like there was a noticeable shift. And what I, what I'm aware of now is, you know, what I can see how, what I can see has played out in terms of internalized beliefs, you know, better I be self-sufficient and have no needs because his needs are more important than mine. Right. Cause that's what I, so I'm guessing, yeah, he's older than you. Right. So usually it's the focus is on the younger child and supporting them, but because he has challenges, like you see him getting all of this, right? like extra support in that where it's, yeah, it's most or oftentimes it's the opposite. Like the older kid would then be like more self-reliant, right? that. And so you were younger, but he needed more attention. Right. So this whole, you know, really this whole independence streak, this whole, no one will be able to do for me what I need to do for myself kind of thing. And, uh, you know, also after he died feeling like I had to be more than one child for my parents, you know, I had to take up more space or I had to be even more and really, you know, spent time trying to heal a grief in my parents that never be healed. I mean, here we are, you know. Yeah. And you can't understand that, but as a child, like uh, trying to be like, okay, they are like, what can I do to like, yeah, like bring them joy, like make them laugh probably like whatever that you don't know. But yes, you see they are so like so sad. So in so much pain or whatever. Okay. It's my job to like, (laughs) And then it feels like pressure, like, okay, he's gone. I'm left. You know, I have to be, you know, before my sister came, you know, so yeah, I think it's, it's, you know, it's complex. (laughs) Very complex. Got it. So that's just a little backstory. (laughs) (laughs) And then that you kept growing in that way, like feeling like sort of like needing to depend on yourself only. It yeah. sounds like. I mean, I, I think that for me, I, I was not a super social kid. Um, I'm still not a super social adult. <laughs> and, uh, I really kept to myself. I wrote, I mean, I, I wrote in a, in a journal since I was 11 years old. I spent a lot of time alone in my room. 
I spent a lot of time, you know, just on my own. I felt very safe, comfortable alone, more comfortable alone than with others. When I look back, especially, you know, at my sort of teen years, my high school years, all of that, I, the sense of belonging that it seems most people are seeking was not a thing for me. Mm, interesting. Because mm-hmm. that's a heavy... <laughs> Because it's a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it it's interesting because I also like love being alone. Well, I am a social person and also love being alone on that. But, but like, yeah, I definitely – and I became very self-reliant. Like I took on the, you know, at some point, I don't know what it was that like nobody cares about me. And so then I turned that into like – so like, it's just me, like, you know, against the world. And that wasn't true. I mean, I had <laughs> like, you know, loving parents and others, but like, yes, we somehow, like I did not have that traumatic of an event, but was like internalized that nobody cares about me. Oh, so I then moved through the world as I don't need you. Right. And I can still project that and automatically go into that. Well, actually feel like hmm, nobody's checked on me. Well, I don't need them. I'm just going to cut those people out of my life. And it's like, yeah, they have busy lives too. And have you checked on them, Trisha? Like, but like my, my automatic default is <laughs> nobody cares about me. So I don't need them. Right. Cut everybody out. <laughs> oh, get it. So anyway, as you were like, as high school's coming to an end, then like, were you eager to get out of your home in your town? Did you want to stay? Did you have ideas of who you were going to be as an adult? Like what <laughs> career path? So my parents offered me a year off between high school and college and I didn't take it. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> and I, and you know, if I have to look back on my life and find a regret, you know, I'm not someone who's big on like, you know, but there, I mean, because the truth of the matter is I would not be exactly who I am right now talking to you had I taken that year off. But so I, I didn't take it. I went, I went to school. Uh, I went to Syracuse University to study communications. And is that pretty close to It's close to Buffalo. Where you were it's a few hours away. And even that, like, the way in which I rebelled against my parents was very specific and subtle. So even going to high school, they wanted me to go to the private co-ed super preppy school. And I did not want to go there. It was very like athletic and very just, it was a certain thing that I didn't want a part of. I flunked the entrance exam on purpose. I wanted to go to the all girls school. So I ended up going there because I had flunked the other exam on purpose. My parents thought there was something wrong with me. They brought in someone to, you know, to test my aptitude. And the guys like, you know, she's fine. (laughs) She's better than fine. (laughs) And then even going to college, and this is really like an insight into my mother, especially. So I, you know, I got into the University of Michigan, which is a very good school. I chose to go to Syracuse because of their communications program. So my mother would tell people she got into Michigan, but she chose to go to Syracuse. (laughs) 
And yeah, and that, I mean, that kind of like, that's a paving of really my 20s. You know, I got, I, I went to school. I found it actually, for me, very alarming to be in school with boys. Interesting. Very alarming because while I had gone to camp and, you know, obviously knew boys, it was really a different scenario going from an all girls high school into a co-ed, you know, big university. It was difficult for me. Do you have any idea like what is that in regards to like the energy? Cause I, so I went to an all girls Catholic high school. I went to to Catholic elementary school, but it was co-ed, but I did not want to go to the all girls high school. But then I ended up being like, oh, I'm so glad I was at the all girls high school. Um, but so I can look back and even in elementary school, feel myself like feeling like, like I had crushes on boys at an early age. And so then having this like, is it cool if I raise my hand or not? Like, you know, like I would find myself questioning myself because I wanted like boys to like me. And so like, for me, it was like the questioning, questioning that, but like, yeah, I, it's interesting. I didn't like, yeah, I then went to like a liberal arts college in downtown Chicago and most of my classes were boys, men and it dollar me. But like, yeah, do you know, like what it, can you think of like what it was about yeah. the alarming? Like, I mean, so and it's interesting, like I've been, I've actually been sort of ruminating on this. I was never one of those girls who like dreamt about getting married or, you know, I was not boy crazy. I was not, you know, the when I lost my virginity, I was like, really, this is what everyone's talking about, <laughs> you know? And I feel I, like most people have that experience. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> most girls know. Right. But there's like this whole thing of like, you know, sex and, you know, boys and whatever that like just never really added up for me. And, you know, I've been with men, I've been with women. I was married for 18 years. I got divorced. I am right now at almost 58 years old, so happy to be relationship free, romantic relationship free. And I can't even imagine at this point in my life. Yeah, it's hard for me to even imagine like being in a relationship like that again. Yeah. So it wasn't, you know, and it's interesting because even though I had the crushes at an early age and stuff, I do realize that a lot of my desire to have a boyfriend, to have a boy like me was because then I could equate that to my enoughness. Like it also had a part in like, let me, I need to have a guy like me or ask for my phone number so then I can go tell my friends. And then I like wouldn't even actually like the guy, but like, so he'd call me and I wouldn't want to talk to him. But I'm like, I really needed people right. <laughs> to like me. <laughs> so then like, so for me, I realized that that like, even though I was, but I never dreamed about getting married either. And I was in a relationship with, had kids, didn't get married and I'm happy. Yeah. yeah people are like, when are you going to start dating? And I'm like, there, yeah, I, I'm sure I will again when the person is there, but I'm not like, yeah, let me get back out there. But yeah, so for you, it might not have been that. It was just maybe even the energy of men or you just got really comfortable being in the all-female environment. I, I think it was more just, uh, I think what I noticed sort of in looking back, and this has been pretty much across the board, I have responded to someone else's desire for me far more than I have acted on my own desire. and. 
you know, I think this is very, I think it's especially common for women to want to be picked or chosen or something like that without actually activating their own picker or chooser. (laughs) And at some point along the way, I realized, oh, I'm sort of defaulting to someone else's desire as opposed to my own. And that if left to my own desire, it's not really there in a lot of ways in terms of a a very sort of traditional or typical relationship. Yeah, I feel that. And I bet that's going to resonate with a lot of people that it can feel like, Mm -hmm. oh, you like me? Exactly. Okay, then. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And not like thinking, wait, but yes, do I actually like what that? Yeah. It's so interesting. And I feel like especially women have been programmed to be like, yeah, oh, yeah. So-and-so is interested in you, Lynn. Like, yeah. Why wouldn't you go on a date with them or something? Exactly. Um, Okay. You all go straight to blissoma.com and get yourself some of these game-changing, authentic green beauty products. I don't know what the magic is in these. The dedication to creating these products has paid off because as soon as I use them, like using a different product line, that is a great product line. But when I go to Blissoma, I see the results immediately. I've never seen anything like it. Okay, so what is it? Cutting edge chemistry meets traditional herbal knowledge for the best of both worlds. Their recipes offer a huge range of phytonutrients that benefit every skin need, including those with sensitivities and painful skin problems. The technologies that they utilize during the manufacturing process make it possible to create totally clean, synthetic-free extractions that are backed by proven scientific research. They offer remedies that directly address the root causes of discomforts, imbalances, and problems with their skin. Every product from their skincare line is based on whole herb extracts, unrefined oils, and fresh juices. They are rich in antioxidants, bioavailable vitamins, essential fatty acids, and complex phytonutrients that are usually missing in refined commercial skincare products. Refined commercial skincare products are the ones that you find on the shelves in your drugstore. And even in those super expensive brands, when they scale, 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 they're not made with the highest quality things, but yet they can still slap a label on it of it being green, of it being organic, and it might not be full of the purest ingredients. Or it might have some great ingredients, but it hasn't been scientifically created to really work together with ingredients themselves and your skin. Some of my favorite products, one is free, which is herbal gel cleanser, Aura, the Phyto Brightening Serum, uh, Restore, which is an Omega Miracle Facial Oil. Seriously, absolutely love Restore. Go check out their products, blissoma.com. I did, there's like a skincare quiz where you fill out a bunch of questions and then an actual person writes you back with suggestions 
And you can go and use the code CLAIMIT20 on anything in the moisturizer category. So it's CLAIMIT20, gives you 20% off. Go to blissoma.com. Seriously, stop messing around and trying all these different products that people tell you to use. I know I'm another person now telling you of a product to use, <laughs> but they are next level. See the results immediately. Like I don't even want to put makeup on because I'm like, whoa, look at my skin. Whoa. <laughs> That's a change. All right. Let's get back to the episode. So you are in school for communications. Uh, what did you like? What did you think you wanted to be? And then what happened after college? So I was really into the whole sort of journalism angle and out of, right out of college, a friend of a friend got me a job at Condé Nast working on the startup of Condé Nast Traveler magazine. Oh, so very this cool. was like the, the almost late 80s, I guess. 87, 80, 87, 80, yeah, 88. And so I you know, moved to New York and did that whole thing. My life was literally the devil wears Prada. Exactly. <laughs> oh, even for a travel magazine that's not like fashion, well, but because it's yeah, Condé Nast. Yeah, Condé Nast, exactly. But everything's so, got to right. be. So it was exactly that. And I ended up leaving that job about a year in and then went to work for another magazine called Connoisseur, which has since folded. And that was at the Hearst Company, so a different company. And then I really realized this is not what I want to do with my life. And I feel so fortunate for that experience because when I left that job, there were women who, you know, who were my age now or young, younger than I am who were like, good for you for knowing you don't want this and for leaving because I've now been here for decades and I, there's nothing else I know how to do kind of thing. So I was, um, it was like a cheering, like in a movie when I left. <laughs> you know, I was thinking you saying that it's kind of interesting, the same thing you were saying about like relationships could be the same where some, some people might be like, oh, well, I got this job that could be a dream job. And so then you're likely could have kept moving up into those magazines, which are like, yeah, like people hear that. Oh, wow, you worked for Condé Nast, like, you know, like these things. So then we feel like we have to stay like, oh, we were chosen by this company or for this position. So I have to stay and then realizing, oh, wait, but this isn't for me. <laughs> like, so it's somewhat similar. Yeah. And, and so then I was about 25. And for my 25th birthday, my parents gave me $2,500. And I went to Italy and Greece. And I was laying on a beach in Greece in Santorini, nude thinking there's got to be a way to make money doing this. <laughs> and I went back to New York and I was telling my friend, Anne this story. And she said, Oh, there is, you should go be an artist model at the school of visual arts. And I did for two years. Wow. Yeah. This feels like a different version of like the high school, Nancy Lynn, just even moving to New York city, but then yep. also now you're a nude model. Yep. For, for art, for art years, class, for art for fine classes, art classes, full time, six to nine hours a day. Wow! And I Amazing. loved it. <laughs> 
I love like ways like why not make money, you know, like if that works for you, like yeah. it's amazing how many ways that we can support ourselves. I loved it. And what's interesting, you know, is that I, you know, growing up, one of the things, you know, so it wasn't so much that I was heavy as it was that my mother was excruciatingly thin. Right. And there was a there was a lot she is a highly critical person. I mean, I love my mother, but she's very critical. Uh, so I grew up, you know, with this criticism and it led me to, you know, bulimia and, you know, all the things, all the things. So it was very interesting to me that my years of nude modeling really healed my body, my body image, my acceptance of my body, all of it. Yeah, I can't imagine because yes, like, and had you grown up in a like, you know, like, were you comfortable being nude like before that? Like, I'm wondering, yeah, yeah with like the freedom, because like, yeah, I'm like, w- have never really like, I just wasn't raised like covered like that, you know, like to that. This day, um, to this day, my mother, eighty three years old, makes her bed naked. You know, like we grew up, my sister and I grew up with a lot of nudity in my house. Got it. So it was a little bit more familiar. (laughs) And so when, at that time, when you were nude modeling, had you, like, yeah, you said you had struggled with bulimia and stuff in the past. Had you stopped those sorts of things beforehand or did? I, I had, I had stopped, but I think I was really disconnected from my body. Right. Like, so you may not have been sabotaging yourself that way, but right. the mental thoughts right. likely still right. existed. Right. And so the, ex- the experience of that really helped reconnect me. And it was, it was a, I mean, it was really a powerful and transforming experience for me because what it then did was because I saw, I mean, here I was 25 to 27 doing that, you know, kids in college, in school who were painting and drawing and sculpting me, I saw them really pursuing their artistic passion. And at that point, I was really considering heavily, do I want to go get my MBA or do I want to go get my master's in poetry? And quite a difference, quite a master's in business or poetry. And seeing these kids really pursuing their artistic passion gave me a lot of courage. And so I ended up moving to Boulder, Colorado to go to Naropa University to get my master's in poetry. I have never heard of Naropa University. Is that a specific like? Yeah. Naropa is a, uh, it's a, it's actually a Buddhist inspired university. I'm not a Buddhist, but it, and the poetry school was founded by Allen Ginsberg and it is one of the very few writing programs at a master, you know, at at, an, at the master's level where you can do poetry and you're not doing a lot of study of a bunch of old shit. <laughs> so it's a lot of writing. It's a lot of act. It's a lot of, you know, doing your own writing as opposed to studying the past. Exactly. Got it. So, and I didn't have to take the GREs. <laughs> because there are other very good schools like Iowa and, you know, there's plenty of good schools, but I didn't want, I just was like, you know what? I don't want to, I don't want to put myself through that whole rigmarole again. So 
I ended up moving from New York City to Boulder, sight unseen. I mean, I had never seen a mountain before. (laughs) I was a hardcore city girl. So it was really alarming to move. You know, I remember, you know, and especially coming from this East Coast work ethic and the whole thing, moving to Boulder, where I remember, you know, walking down Pearl Street, which is like the main drag, and seeing people on a Tuesday at 11 a.m. outside drinking coffee. And I'm like, don't these people work? You know, (laughs) because it was such and this is now 30 years ago. But it was such a different way of life than I had ever seen. And so getting a master's in poetry, what did you imagine? Like, I'm going to get a master's in poetry and then you're going to become a poet. I thought I would actually, I thought what I would do is move to Boulder, do the master's program, which was a two-year program. And I would move back to New York and teach. That's what I thought I would do. Teach poetry or something. Writing of some sort. Got it. But you but poetry for you was obviously a Yeah. And I and I always teaching, I mean, I always have wanted to be a teacher. Like if you ask my sister how many times she had to be the student to my teacher growing up, you know, I I think I've always I think I was born to be a teacher. So So did that end up playing out then? I'm guessing no, because it sounds like you... you, you, I did not (laughs) move back to New York. But also the, yeah, becoming a teacher. Well, becoming a teacher happened in a very roundabout way. (laughs) Yeah. So what happened? Um, Did you get the master's in poetry? I got the master's. Um, Within 24 hours of moving to Boulder, I met the man who became my husband. Wow. And as I, you know... As I tell the story, you know, it was literally as if he said to me, hi, I'm broken. And I said, great, I'm Superwoman. I will fix you, (laughs) you know, and, you know, we were married for 18 years. All the gory details are in all of my books and things. (laughs) And I, you know, I did not move away from here uh, except for other lived in other places in Colorado but did not end up moving away. And after I graduated from Naropa with my master's, I went to work in their school of continuing education. And we were asked to partner with another organization on a conference. And so one morning it was brought up in a meeting, you know, who wants to be who wants to spearhead this conference? And I, I said, I do. And so I was, you know, conference director overnight and I produced my first large event in Boulder, about 2000 attendees with the likes of Deepak Chopra, Maya Angelou, you know, speaking. And and that was my first sort of initiation into that work. That was like Again, because we're in a different time now. In person. In person, right. In person. conference. Right. In Boulder, Colorado. Right. Exactly. <laughs> this Deepak is so- Chopra, right. Maya Angelou right. were in. Right. right. <laughs> this was 97. Yeah. I mean, organizing an online conference is still a lot too, but also yeah. that's like, yeah, like yeah. bringing that people together. So, okay. So it was like a conference on school grounds. Yeah. Yeah, we hosted it. So, and then from there, 
I realized, oh, this is my jam. I love doing this. I love producing. You love the organizing. Oh, producing. Yep. I love doing the whole thing. And so then I ended up from there, went on to work with New Age Journal Magazine, which then became Body and Soul Magazine and, and produced conferences for them. Then Omega Institute produced events for them, then worked at Sounds True. And then in 2000, and then I actually produced events for Duke University and the uh, SPCA in San Francisco. Jane Goodall was like one of our big keynotes, all these things. And then the cherry on top was that in 2002, Reed Tracy, the president and CEO of Hay House, came to me and said, will you run our event division? So I, for 12 years, was the event director at Hay House, producing all of our live events in person around the world for a dozen years. Got it. So once you did the one for your school in Denver, did you end up sort of being like hire by contract, like freelance, like, yep. okay, you have an event coming up. I'll do that. So you're doing it like, but you didn't strictly work for a nope. company. Nope. I did everything freelance until Hay House. And oh, at I, the time- I worked for Sounds True for about a year where I was um, an employee, but everything had been freelance. And yeah, again, we're like, still a pandemic, but Hay House used to have several conferences all over the world where it's like having their authors come to speak and like writing workshops and all sorts of things. In 2007, we did 97 events in one year. Goodness. I was on the road (laughs) 200 plus days a year and I had a staff, you know, when I couldn't be at everything, but I was at almost everything. Wow. That's a lot. Yeah. And then, so where did you decide to write? Oh, wait, no, didn't I learn when I was on your podcast? Did you first <laughs> self-publish your first book, even though you were working for a publisher? Did you even try to? So, so yeah, what happened with that first book and like what inspired you to write it and then take that path? Yeah. So I was working- Were you at- still- got okay. Whoa, what was that? I was going to say, were you still working at- Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I was working at Hay House and I was going through my divorce. And as I was going through my divorce, two of my coworkers at Hay House were getting married and they asked me to write a poem for their wedding ceremony and to read it. And I did. I'm laughing because I'm like, and of course, the irony. That could be a that's amazing and could be a lot. <laughs> could be as I am ending this. <laughs> let me give you a blessing for your marriage. Right. So I did this and Reed heard the poem and he was like, you're like a real poet. And I said, well, Reed, I have a master's in poetry. <laughs> And then he said, um, you know, because I emceed all of our events. So I emceed, you know, whether it was 100 people or I think our largest event was 7,500 people. And he said, you know, you should start reading your poems as you introduce the speakers. Hmm. So in my mind, you know, so it was like, go out and read a you know, read a poem and then introduce Wayne Dyer, introduce Louise Hay, introduce Carolyn Mace or whoever, Marion Williamson, you know? And I'm like, really? Like who the hell wants to hear my poems? And then a really magical thing happened. And I remember it was at the I Can Do It conference in Pasadena and I was introducing Wayne and I got up and read a poem 
and af- and then, you know, brought Wayne on. And then after, you know, after that event, a woman came up to me and said, you know, I thought I came here tonight to hear Wayne Dyer, but I came here to hear your poem. And chills. it was, yeah, it was, I mean, to this day, it was, it's like a profound moment for me because what I really, I thought I never intended to publish. I didn't go get my master's in poetry to publish, even though I've always written. I thought, oh, my poem, my poetry is so personal, you know, who's going to resonate or who's going to get it. And then you realize the more personal, the more universal, you know, and all of that. And so, you know, at all of our events, I was sharing my poems. And then Reed said to me, you should actually put together a book of your poems. And, you know, and he's the one who said, you know, self-publish it because we're not going to publish it. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) (laughs) You know, he's like, you publish, self-publish your own book. But I'll tell you, I think self-publishing for a first-time author is the best because you can, first of all, you can have a book in your hands very quickly. Whereas, as you well know, the traditional publishing process takes a very long time, anywhere from 12 to 24 months, really. You know? (laughs) I feel like it's even longer than that. Well, for me, because I'm thinking of like the process of starting a book proposal to the book being (laughs) For me, it was like like two and a half years or something. Yeah. Right. Versus, you know, I'm even talking about just when you hand a manuscript in. Right. Got it. Yeah. You have written the entire book and then it won't come out until, got it. Whereas, you know, writing a book and self-publishing it, I had a book, a physical book in my hand three months later. And it really helped me build my platform and it helped give me street cred so much so that I actually went on to publish my second book because Reed had said, so after my poetry book was out. And so, and so when you self-published, was that like through Amazon? I mean, you don't I didn't actually, people. so, so it was like a... does have a self-publishing arm. Oh, that's Belboa right. Press. And I did it with Belboa Press. Got it. So it wasn't, yeah, just upload it. It was probably more in depth than you can just simply upload yeah. something to Amazon. And Amazon has its own way of right. self-publishing. Exactly. So you did sort of like, yeah, go through an actual publishing process. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I mean, you know, it's, I had to pay it's self pub you know, it was, it wasn't a hybrid even. It was like pure self-publishing. I paid, you know, then it was print on demand, you know, the whole thing. And then, and then, was it just being sold like on Amazon? Did you have your own website? Did is it then sold on Hay House? It was being sold on Amazon, not Hay House. Okay, it was being sold on Amazon, and it was I didn't sell it at the time, but it was yeah. But then you're still at events, I'm guessing, and then reading poetry, and you could say like, oh exactly. yes, exactly, like you can the go Hay get House my book. Store on site would have my book. Yeah, got it. Or even just yes, if somebody hears a poetry, exactly, there you have an audience because you are doing all these events exactly for exactly. other authors. But exactly. oh, by the way, yes, yeah, you like exactly. my poem. And then once I was really on the other side of my divorce, Reed said, "Okay, now it's time to write a real book." And so I wrote "Jump and Your Life Will Appear," which was ten steps, basically inch by inch guide to making a major change. I used my own story of my divorce as the through line. Then I used, I mean, I, I essentially used my own process later, even to leave my job and make other changes. And so it, you know, it can apply to more than one thing. And I self-published that book as well. Through the same system? Yep. Through the same system. So 
at that time, so now we're in, I, I self-published my poetry book in 2011. And then in about 2013, I went to read and said, I'm really burned out. I'm resigning. And Reed said, I'll tell you when you can quit your job. (laughs) And the reason he said that is as I was going through my divorce, my dear friend and mentor, the late Debbie Ford, had really taken me under her wing. And I ended up going through her coach training and certification program as a way to do my own inner healing work. I had no designs on being a coach. I had my dream job at Hay House and it was an extensive program. And at the end of it, it became really clear to me that I wanted to help other people make change and get free. And I wanted to coach. So I started my side hustle. And so I was doing my full-time job at Hay House, which at that time was like, a full-time job for three people. Yeah. And that does, yeah. I'm like, that sounds like <laughs> a, a lot, a lot, a lot. A lot. And I was coaching on the side. And I was then writing this book, Jump in Your Life Will Appear. So when I went to read to say, I've got too much on my plate, I need, I need to quit. He said, you know, get Jump in Your Life Will Appear, like self-publish it, get it published. Get your coaching business up and running solid so that when you leave here, you have a firm foundation and platform to go to. And it was the best advice he could have given me. What was, so I'm guessing, so the book, oh wait, so he was the one though that was like, now it's time for you to write the first book, but then also like self-publish it. Was he just like seeing that in you that like, yeah, you have something you want to share, but like, yeah, but it wasn't necessarily... It wasn't necessarily like, oh, but we're not going to publish your book because it's not good enough for us. Like he just like could tell like perhaps like it would be healing for you to do that project and get it out of you and get it out in the world. Is that why he, maybe he was like pushing you to do it and then self-publish? Yeah. And and I think that, it, you know, I think, I mean, legit for the poetry book, it was. Well, and the actuality of publishing that as much as they like you as a person and love you, then it's like, well, we do need to sell a book and we don't right, know. Of if course. Right. Buy, like, I'm sure that is also the part of it. Like, right. it is really hard to get a book deal, people. Right. You know, and then after I published Jump in Your Life Will Appear in February of 2014, In May of 2014, Reed called me and said, hey, your book is actually doing really well. (laughs) We want to pick it up. Got it. So they then, Hay House then picked up that book. And then about two weeks after that, Reed called me and said, okay, it's time for you to go. Wow. And I was like bawling my eyes out. And I'm like, are you firing me? And he's like, no, this was our plan. You know, this is the plan. So I ended up leaving at the end of August 2014 is when I left my position there. And then subsequently did four more, have done four more books with Hay House. Yeah. So four more after they picked up. After they picked up Jump, then I did um, Worthy, Boost Your Self-Worth to Grow Your Net Worth. Then I did your new relationship blueprint, which got then retitled for paperback called Permission to Put Yourself First. 
Then I wrote Setting Boundaries Will Set You Free. And then my latest book, The Art of Change, which is a guided journal. <laughs> awesome. And I'm guessing since then, too, and leaving Hay House, then you did, I'm not guessing, I know somewhat that like, yeah, then you did end up growing your own coaching business and like, and what do you special, like, I feel like you, do you specialize in a certain? So I, I mean, I started out, you know, one-on-one coaching and group coaching and had a membership and all of, you know, all of that. And then all the things. Uh, we are now, I literally today, the day of our recording <laughs> is day one of the fourth cohort of Love and Life Coach Academy, where I am training and certifying life coaches. Right. And so where did um, that, because that's, you know, that's quite a different thing, but also not if like, yeah, you, you originally took your own coaching program for yourself, like to be healing yourself and learning these things and then decided, okay, I actually want to help people. And so I do want to become a coach. So I do see that as an extension of like, eventually like, okay, I want to coach other people to become coaches and do this. Is that like where that sort of came from or where did it come from to you to want to create your own like life coaching certification program? So Debbie Ford, with whom I trained, Debbie died in 2013. And there was a real gap in terms of, I mean, yes, while there are many coach training and certification programs out there, there was something really divine about the way that she, you know, the way that she trained and the way that she coaches. And people would be coming to me. What ended up happening is I I sort of became this coach to the coaches. So coaches were coming to me saying, you know, I want to know how to coach like you. And I didn't have anywhere to send them <laughs> because Debbie's Debbie's school went on for maybe two years, but very sort of, it sort of fell apart right. without her. And so I realized that it was kind of one of those things, like if I want to have somewhere to send people, I need to make it. <laughs> Got it. You know? And I had a lot of, it was really interesting because I had a lot of people who were, who were certified coaches from other programs come to me and say, here's the deal. I am, I am a certified coach. I don't know how to get a client and I wouldn't even know what to do with a client once I got one. Oh, interesting. So, I mean, I can understand like the, how to get a client is yeah. Like of any running your own business can be challenging to like, not just put yourself out there, but to bring people in, but then they're saying they've gone through a coaching program and then go, I don't even know what I would do. Yeah. Yeah. What are they teaching in these coaching programs? (laughs) What is going on? So I, I knew that in putting together a program that, you know, obviously wanted to be able to include a very clear proven process. I wanted to, you know, have them really immerse themselves in practicing coaching before even getting out. And then, you know, one of the things that has my program really stand out is that immediately following certification included intuition is what we call the alumni springboard, which is all about how to build your business from scratch, how to get your first paying client. I mean, you know, literally get your first paying client a week out of certification, you know, so and not from like a cheesy place, but from like, okay, we have, this is a business now. How do you, how do you actually operate in the world as a business owner, not just a coach? And looking at it from the entrepreneurial lens and all the things that need to be done 
So did you end up like blending um, what you had learned from Debbie's school with your own in a way? Because I assume like, yeah, like that's what gave your, your you your background. So do you bring her work in? So, I mean, what I would say is all like, so each of my books, except for the poetry book, so the other five all have a corresponding coaching curriculum and were so they were all actually written specifically knowing that I would then extract a coaching program out of the book. Oh, got it. I have five different coaching models of my own. Now that is of course to say, I have certainly been influenced by Debbie by Louise, by Wayne, by, you know, by all of my teachers and mentors. <laughs> right. Uh, I would definitely say that in terms of Debbie and the shadow work and going into shadow beliefs and, you know, pieces of that are absolutely in me. Uh, I have, Debbie and I were quite close and worked very closely. And in the closing of her training program, I was given permission by her estate to her material. And my, I mean, my training program certainly has, you know, I would say it was born out of hers and it's very different. And it's yeah, yeah. different. And I wasn't meaning to be like, oh yeah, you're just leading like Debbie's. Oh, like no, I just no, assumed no, 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 no. that that must've been influential because yeah, like you were saying, people were asking where to go and you couldn't go like, yeah, go do this one. Yeah. Like, I did it and I loved it. Like, cause it doesn't exist that there must've been things you really loved about it. Exactly. Then you wanted to pass on as well yeah. as your own um, yeah. learning and evolution. Yeah. So your newest book, the guided journal style, what made that like, was that something you felt like you always wanted to do or was it like, okay, I have this idea. And then it did it. Did you are like, yeah, like what came first? Like I want to create a guided journal or I have an idea for something. Oh, I think it works best in this format. Yeah. So I'll tell you. I have been a lifelong journaler and I absolutely wanted to create a journal. And this book is the first book that I created from a coaching model I created first. The other four books, I wrote the book and then extracted the coaching model from. This book, The Art of Change, is really based on my model of reinvention coaching, which is the first coaching model that I certify students in in my academy. So I had created the coaching model. And then I actually originally wanted to write a book book from that coaching model. And Hay House actually came to me and said, we want you to write to create a journal. And I said, great. Yes, I'm going to do this journal. And hey, I have this other idea for this book based on this coaching model. And then through conversations, we were like, oh, that's the same thing. (laughs) (laughs) We're like, let's make it this. Let's make it one, which is great, (laughs) which is great. Also good news for me that you said, hey, house is interested because I want to do a guided workbook that goes with my thing. And my agent was like, I don't think they really do those. Well, and that's actually what I'm doing today is working on my proposal for my like workbooks. And I'm going to be like, well, Nancy said that Hay House actually wanted her to Here's the thing, thing, because I wanted to call it a workbook because that's 
I know I keep going with myself. Is it a workbook or guided journal? Hay House did not want a workbook. So funny. <laughs> All right. Good note. Glad I talked so, to you today because I, I literally am working on my proposal for that. <laughs> right. They so. did not want a workbook. They wanted it to be a guided journal. And I said, great. I'm happy for it to be a journal, but I have a fair amount of content that I want in here. So it right. is a robust journal. Yeah. <laughs> Which that's that is it's interesting the word choice and even workbook can be a bit like well what does that mean is it a bunch of just like assignment like you know like right. for me I kind of feel like workbook does feel like you fill in a line here and you're right like yours is a blend of like it's not just like each page there's one prompt or you know there's different prompts but there's also like yes pages of content pages of content to guide you exactly. and yeah and that felt really important to me I didn't I mean no offense to the journals that are like a quote and a and you know a pretty page. yeah they're just a different format and for yeah like that's the thing like we all we I, like there's a place for all of those exactly. where it's like sure like I just want to like open it up to a line and that's great I'm gonna write about this but this one will take you on a deeper journey I imagine which is the same right. like yeah like I want to create something that like great I basically told you in the book but like now let's do it for you exactly. let's pull you into my process I showed you how I figured these things out for myself now let's you know make it you be in action. Truth be told, how many people get a book with exercises in it and read the book, don't do the exercises, you know? And so I really wanted to be able to create a way to incorporate, you know, these journal prompts in a way that it would almost feel like you're being coached. Yes, same. And I, it, I mean, too, like, it's so like people read books and they love it. Oh my gosh, I love your book. And you know, I like, but that doesn't actually mean that they're going to start applying the Probably. shifts. Like we wish, exactly. we wish that you can read something that you take, watch the videos that you, you know, do the thing, but the real shifts really happen when, yeah, like you're making those actionable. And so I do think like these types of the guided guided workbook, yeah. guided journal, <laughs> yeah. is that, yeah, it's like, it's making, sure, you still got to be the one that actually takes the time to write down that that answer, yeah. not just yeah. read it, but like that, that is like creating the change of like, oh, the art of change, You're creating the change yourself by stepping into it, by like, yes, by actually answering these questions for yourself, that you are then like taking this time to be intentional and look at your life and what you want and what you don't and et cetera and et cetera. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I was so excited that you came out with that in general, but also because yes, it's like validating <laughs> for me. <laughs> but yeah, so the art of change, eight weeks to making a meaningful shift in your life. So you did, you structured it in a way like to be, I'm, I'm sure of course people can do it at their own timing, if they yeah. wanted to blow through it. Of course. Um, yes. <laughs> but like, can. was that an intentional thing for you, especially since you sort of like said it came from a course? So yeah. like, maybe if I make it, it'd be an eight week thing, then like it's more digestible or more actionable. Yeah. I wanted to set it in time and I wanted to really, you know, set it up in a way where the change you can make in a short amount of time is legit, you know, so that you, know that you're not, you know, it's not going to take years and years to, to make a shift. And because the coaching model itself is an eight week model, it translated to this very easily. And I didn't want to make it 
you know, like eight months or eight, whatever, you know, I wanted to keep it in a compact period of time for momentum. Yeah. I love that because I feel like, and I'm sure you've seen that too. Like one of the things, big things that can keep people from making a change or starting something or trying something is that like I said that we like, we focus too much on that dream idea. Like sure we want to change it. We visualize it, but then it can feel so far away, so hard. It's going to take so long. So then you never actually make the steps towards it because like you only can see this dream one day outcome. But like, when are you going to? And that really like, yeah, you can step into it exactly and start taking the steps towards it. So I love that you, um, yeah, broke it down and sort of like gave people that like, yeah, eight weeks and not like the art of change. Like one day I will get around to making this change. She says it's possible. I have this book. (laughs) Like you're like, okay, eight weeks. I'm going to start it to week one now. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. So what, um, what's next for you? Continuing with the, yeah. And that your program is, is it a year long? It's uh, the coaching. The, the training is uh, seven months. And then with the alumni, you know, the alumni springboard piece, it's about 10 months. So yeah, I'm continuing to grow my academy and I love, I, I love it more than anything. I love it so much. <laughs> and as Wayne Dyer would say, I'm sure I'm writing another book. I just don't know what it is yet. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah. So this is fifth or sixth, sixth with the poetry. It is the sixth yeah. book. Yeah. Very cool. Okay. I'm going to get to the questions I ask everybody. The first one is, what is a go-to to raise your joy levels? Ah, <sighs> go-to to raise my joy levels, um, hiking. And yeah, and you stay, you ended up staying in Boulder this whole time, right? <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> Hell yes. <laughs> Um, okay, okay. I asked people to apply this phrase to their life. What is easiest for you is not always what is best for you. Like maybe a natural way you're wired. Um, so what is easiest for me is blank. What is best for me is blank. What is easiest for me is, oh boy. What is easiest for me is being a hermit. <laughs> what is best for me <laughs> is interaction. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. It doesn't have to be all the time, all the people, but yeah, like making the, like, okay, have I gotten out outside of my hermit for my delegated time this week? Have I talked to anyone but myself today other than <laughs> Zoom? <laughs> but Zoom is count. really great for Zoom connection, counts. but yes, real Zoom person counts. interactions are also great. Yeah. Zoom counts. Zoom counts. <laughs> Okay. So the name of the podcast is Claim It. What are you claiming for yourself right now? I am claiming the joy of being child-free by choice and single by choice. Love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. Love that for you. And yeah, I have so many friends that same. It's like, it's, I'm so happy that I think that that is going away, but yeah, I bet. You know what? I think it might be easier for women of an like, okay, I'm 40 or something could be that, but I bet you girls in their 20s, especially if they're married or getting asked or like, or whatever, it's like this constant, oh, are you dating anybody? Oh, are you getting blah, 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 blah. Oh, when are you getting married? Oh, are you going to have kids? It's like, we don't need to be asking those questions. I mean, I, I've been, I mean, I went, I went through it all. <laughs> yeah. But I'm, is it, do you, I'm guessing now, like I'm saying, is it easier at your age to be able to like own that where maybe do you get 
asked about it less or do people ask you then still like, oh, do you regret having, do you get those yeah, types of I guess, questions? Yeah. People, you know, I think I mean, it was definitely when I was, when I was younger, when I was like, when I had just been right. married or like my late twenties, thirties, even 40, you know, the, I mean, my mother would famously say, why do you keep telling me you don't want children? And I would say, well, why do you keep asking me? Because I, if you keep, because that is the answer me, to your, <laughs> exactly. If you keep asking me, I will give you this answer, you know? And then I think it got to the point where, yeah, then people start asking, like, do you regret, you know, that kind of a thing. And then even now people seem to think, you know, oh, I want to fix you up with someone or why aren't you on the dating apps? I mean, I've never, I mean, I wouldn't, I mean, whatever. It's just, none of it's interesting to me. And people think, have their own feelings about that. Yeah. It's interesting. It's, I don't know if it's just like, that's how people think to have conversation. Like, oh, are you dating anyone? Or if like, it's really just, you know, this condition thing within yeah. us to be like, are you okay? Like you're going to, you need, you know, are you okay? <laughs> sort yeah, of thing exactly. like, yeah. like, is it just conversational style? Either way, like, let's rethink about what we're having conversations with people about. <laughs> right. I know. I mean, it's funny. And my... what the default questions are. Like, why? Because <laughs> if I was dating somebody, I would probably tell you. Like, <laughs> that's right. like my friends who would right. ask me that, right? right? Like, oh, are you dating? Like, you would you likely know. hear. I would be like telling you either about a terrible date or because I was excited. Exactly. <laughs> I know. My mom gave me this really gorgeous, like really skinny diamond band that was made out of a bunch of antique diamonds that she had made. And she gave it to me. And she then was very annoyed that I wore it on my wedding ring finger. She's like, well, people will think you're married. I'm like, good. <laughs> they won't bother me. <laughs> Funny. All right. Well, I love you claiming that and anybody else out there <laughs> claiming that too. And yeah, go check out all of Nancy's book, but the new one, The Art of Change, A Guided Journal. Thank you, Trisha. All right. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Nancy. Go check out her books, including her most recent guided journal, One Perfect Time for the New Year Starting. You can find everything from Nancy at nancylevin.com. So if you're interested in becoming a life coach, you can check out her program. Of course, don't forget about my own book, F the Shoulds, Do the Once. You can go to ftheshouldsdothewants.com. You can still claim bonuses there, by the way. No matter when you may have ordered a book or bought a book, you can enter your details on that website and get some bonuses from me. You can find all things me, yourjoyologist.com, at underscore Trisha Huffman's my main social media, but I've got Claim It Podcast, I've got Your Joyologist, Go shop my products. I am liquidating liquidating the shop, which is both exciting and scary. <sighs> I've made products for so long now. I'm not saying I never will, but changes are happening. So go get my products while I still have them at shop.yourjoyologist.com. I have got the daily inspiration app called Own Your Awesome in the app stores. Of course, join my From the Heart community, also trishahuffman.substack.com. I am sending you so much love there many times a week. All right, I'm going to sign off here. Let's think of 
What are you claiming for yourself right now? And (laughs) since it's almost a new year, why don't we think about it? Like, what are you claiming for yourself in 2023? Maybe it's just one word. Like I am claiming magic. I am claiming abundance. I am claiming presence. I am claiming ease. I am claiming joy. I just said many things to give you an example. (laughs) But yeah, try to go with like one or two. Don't overwhelm yourself with 12 different things that you're going to claim in 2023. Give yourself like one or two to focus on to remind yourself to take with you throughout the year. Because when you get distracted, when you get all twisted up and turned around and all that stuff, being like, all right, I claim ease. That's what I claimed back when I was listening to that podcast. I claim ease. (laughs) Sending you love. Have an awesome rest of your day. Go claim some joy and claim some ease while you're at it.